Well, praise the Lord. Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And we'll begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. The title of this morning's message is Mastering Your Moods. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but would like you to think for just a moment, how many of you have had a mood this week? I saw that hand. We all experience them at one time or another. Bad mood, good mood, and it can change quickly. And in this passage of Scripture, I believe we have guidance from the Lord how to handle those moods that are destructive or distracting or harming our relationship with God or people who are close to us. In chapter 18, before we read this chapter in 19, Ahab and Jezebel, who are the king and queen of Israel, have established idolatry, particularly the worship of the idol Baal. And in that chapter, we had that great confrontation of the prophet Elijah with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. He calls them out. He does it the way we would love to see it done in real life in Hollywood. And this happened in history. But it doesn't always happen this way. But, but if I wanted everyone to know what God is really like, that he's really there, I think I would go to that pyramid thing in Memphis and do one of these. <laughs> you know, call them out. Say, whatever God you have, ask him to do something. And, um, and then we'll call on our God and let's see what he can do. And that's what they did. They had the sacrifice. They had it piled on an altar with all the wood. And the prophets of Baal called out and called out and called out, and nothing happened. And then Elisha prayed, and fire fell from heaven. And it, and it burned the sacrifice. But that wasn't enough. It burned the wood that the sacrifice was sitting on. But that wasn't enough. It burned the very stones of the altar. It destroyed the altar. And that wasn't enough. That fire burned the very soil that the altar was sitting on. And all the people who were gathered there fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then something unusual happens. The very last verse of chapter 18 tells us that Elisha went on the run towards Jezreel. Jezreel was the capital of Israel at that time. And and and. Elisha was a wanted man. Jezebel hated him. And, and it's hard to imagine why he is the most wanted man in Israel, would go to the very capital of Israel and show himself. Unless he expected something different than what happened. In fact, I believe with all my heart that Elisha was going to Jezreel because this was the next thing to happen. That God had shown himself and there was going to be a national reformation. There was going to be a national revival. God was either going to turn the hearts of Ahab and Jezebel or he was going to overthrow them. There was going to be some kind of coup d'etat. There was going to be something that was going to be dramatic as God took the next step and overthrew this wicked government. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 19. That sets the stage. Ahab 
told Jezebel all that Elisha had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life, and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die, and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went to a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the second time God asked that. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. That's the second time he answered the same way. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, yet Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elisha is in despair. He's out of gas. He's done everything he knows to do, and he's out of ideas, and he's out 
of miracles. In verse 3, it says he let his servant go. That was his staff. He didn't have a servant because he was a rich man. He had a servant because he was a helper to him in his ministry. And he let him, his staff go. He was out of the ministry. He was finished. He was done. And have you ever felt overwhelmed by emotions like that? Some of you sitting here today may be experiencing those kinds of emotions as you hear my voice. And those emotions, whether they're something like being irritable, having a bad day, worried, fearful, sad, bored, depressed, those moods can be incapacitating as it was for Elisha. In this passage of Scripture, as God comes to Elijah, I believe there's some things that counsel us in how to master our moods. First, mastering your moods requires you to release your emotions. Requires you to release your emotions. Did you notice in verse 4 that it says he prayed to God that God would let him die? That God would let him die. And in releasing his emotions, he is talking directly to God. And so I have a cell phone. This one doesn't work. This is an old one. But I have a cell phone. And the imagery that's here is that Elisha calls on God. Now, you don't need a cell phone to call God. I don't even know his number to tell you what to dial on a cell phone. But just as surely as you dial a cell phone, you can dial God up. By simply turning in your heart to him and calling on him and pouring out your heart before him. Have you ever felt suicidal? Some of you may be feeling that today in a congregation this size. It happens. And I want you to see that Elisha felt that way and he wanted to end his life. But I want you to notice something. That even at his lowest point, Elisha did not presume that he could take his own life. He asked God to do it. Now, that tells me that your life is precious to God. That Elisha, at his lowest moment, didn't feel he had the right to take his own life because our lives are a gift from God, and they are precious to him. And as long as you're breathing, God is sustaining your life, and he has a purpose for you. But there's a lesson here that you and I need to see. Elisha was honest with God. Now, he doesn't need to know what's in your mind and your heart because he already knows. There's nothing that's formed as a word on your lips or a thought in your mind that he is not already fully aware of. But that honesty with God was the very first step that Elisha needed to take. Oh, God, I just want it to end. I'm through. And he pours his heart out to God. The Apostle Peter describes something very similar to this in 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. And he writes this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That's what Elisha was doing. That he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You're not going to offend God by pouring out your heart to him, by being honest about how you feel that you'd rather just exit this life, you're not going to offend him, but it is the first step in the healing of your heart. 
There's a second thing that happens when you and I are going to master our emotions, is that you need to refresh your body. It says that he ate and drank and lay down again. And so, to help us understand what that means, I brought a pillow. This is one of my pillows. And uh, the way this week has been, I wish I could just lie down right now and go to sleep. It's, uh, it's been a full week and a busy week. And those of you who know me well, when you, you hear me giving counsel to refresh your body, some of you are thinking, preacher, heal thyself. Because uh, I do get tired and, and burn it at both ends too often. But I recognize what's happening to Elijah, and I know many of you do too. What does God do first with a completely despondent prophet? Does the angel come and say, fear not? No. Does the angel come and say, I bring you glad tidings? No. Does the angel say, repent? No. The angel doesn't even say, do you want to talk about it? He doesn't say anything like that. What does God do first for Elijah? He cooks. The angel touches him and tells him to eat. Elijah needed to be refreshed physically and mentally. I call that to your attention because there are some Christians confronted with someone like Elisha who would say, well, you need to pray, brother. This is a lack of faith. Or they'll go on down their other items on their fix the prophet list. They'll say, okay, Elisha, have you prayed in faith? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you pleaded the blood? Have you thanked God? And what we see in contrast to that is that God is well aware that Elisha has a physical nature, and so do you. And you are limited because of that. Sometimes you don't need prayer. Sometimes you don't need a lecture. Sometimes you don't need a sermon. You need rest. And the most spiritual thing you can do is go to bed. And that's what's happening here in Elisha's life. A study done a couple years ago by the Center's for disease control found that 30% of Americans get fewer than six hours of sleep a night. That adds up. That means a third of you are running on less than six hours of sleep at night. I happened to get over six last night, barely. But we're tired. And the practice that I used to have before I came to win, and I'm going to restore it. I promise you I'm going to restore it. About every three months, I used to get away, and it helped when I was traveling. It's a little harder to do now, but every three months or so, I'd get away for a day or two. And always, it was to spend time with the Lord and be refreshed. And there was a phenomenon that I discovered about 15 years ago when I began doing that, that the first day I got there, I would, I would take this time away from my family, away from my work, to be alone with God, to get my heart back on track. And I would, I would spend that retreat time seeking Him and taking my journal and reading things that God would use to speak to me. And He would refresh me through that. But one of the things that I discovered early on was that when I would first get to wherever I was going, and I'd open my Bible and I'd have my journal there and I'd be ready to talk to God, that I'd fall asleep. And I used to be so disappointed in myself for that. And I thought, here I've made all this effort to be alone with God, and all I can do is fall asleep. And then I learned not to fight it anymore. There is so much residual fatigue 
that many of you are carrying right now as I speak that has to be discharged and released before you can hear God. And there's tremendous value in getting the rest that you need. We are an exhausted people. There's a third thing we need to do to master our emotions. You need to redirect your actions. In verses 7 and 8, it describes this process by which the angel came and fed him again and said, the journey is too much for you. And then at that moment, it says he arose and he went. In other words, as soon as he got a little strength back, as soon as he was a little bit refreshed, he took off again. But this time, he goes to Horeb, the mountain of God. And those of you who are Bible scholars will know that it was at Horeb that Moses encountered God in a burning bush. It was at Horeb that God brought the people of God out of Egypt and there received the Ten Commandments. It was at Horeb that God did things in the life of people. So what does that tell you Elisha was after? He wanted to see God. He wanted to encounter God. His heart had been sufficiently rested. His body has been sufficiently refreshed that now he can redirect himself, his actions, to a place where he can begin to hear God again. So he's seeking him. And he's saying, in effect, God, I thought I knew who you were. I thought I knew what you wanted, but I realize now there's so much more that I don't know about you. And so he's acting now on his questions, and he's going where God is. And so I brought with me what he's looking for, what he's finding is a map. This happens to be a map of Texas, kind of God's country, maybe, if you're from Texas. I am. And we need a map. And we, we get to a place where we can begin to say, God, what are you saying to me? Lord, what's happening? What direction do you have for me? And, and he has that yearning, that longing in him. It's at that point in your life when it's probably a good idea to talk to someone. That in your process and your journey of trying to find God, to find someone who knows God, who will encourage you and pray with you and give you direction. And there's no harm in that because that's what he was seeking and that's one of the steps that God was using to bring Elisha back to wholeness. You have one of the great advantages, though, that Elisha didn't have, and that is that the Holy Spirit of God lives inside every Christian, inside every believer. And so you don't have to take a journey to Horeb, but you can be still before the Lord and begin to hear his voice again. So we need to release our emotions, we need to refresh our body, we need to redirect our actions, but then if we're going to master our moods, number four, you need to review your behavior. Review your behavior. God asked the question twice. What are you doing here, Elisha? He asked it in verse 9 and in verse 13. Now, when God asks a question in the Bible, it's not so that he can learn the answer. It's not so God can get some information that he needs. When God asks you a question, it's so that you can get something that you need. And we see that pattern throughout the Scripture. Adam, where are you? When God calls out to him, he knew where Adam was, but it was to say something to Adam so Adam could learn something about himself. And so God is calling Elisha to reflect. God is calling him to think about what he's been doing, what he's been saying, what he's been thinking that's led up to this moment. And he lets Elisha speak. 
And he doesn't say anything at first. God listened as Elisha spoke. Now, from my vantage point, I, I'm looking at Elisha, I'm listening to him, and I want to take my no whining button and stab it on his shirt. Because sometimes I'm not like God. <laughs> but God listens to Elijah. He's, he's careful. And I want you to note the wisdom and the love of God in this. You know, there are some people who believe that, that this universe is just a sum of atoms and molecules and that we occurred as human beings by accident through a process of evolution. And, um, and so when you have a problem emotionally, when you have a problem in your life, like these mood swings that we're talking about, that the only answer is to take a pill. And they reduce everything to a pill or some kind of imbalance organically because that's all you are. You're just a bag of chemicals and substances, and something's out of balance, and we just need to give you a pill. Then there's others, and a lot of Christians fall into this others category, who, who look at everything in black and white terms. Everything's right and wrong. Everything's good and bad. And so when they see someone who's having, having a problem like this, they, they, are, they will deny the physical part of who we are. They will deny the need for rest. They'll ignore it. They ignore the physical aspect of who we are, and they'll say, well, you're sinning somewhere, brother. You're not praying. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And they'll never be able to help a depressed person with counsel like that. And then there's a whole other group of people, not necessarily believers, but there are others who will say that the answer is being listened to, and it's a psychological approach. They'll say, well, you just need to talk. I can't judge. I can never tell you there's anything wrong. You just need to talk. We're not going to evaluate what's happening to you. You've been abused. You've been hurt. It's all psychological. And they reduce everything to that. Now, listen to me carefully. You can reduce everything to the physical, and you're going to be wrong. You can reduce everything to the spiritual or the moral, and you're going to be wrong. You can reduce everything to the psychological, and you're going to be wrong. The God of the universe invented you and I as people with a body, a soul, and a spirit. And we need someone to come and heal us on all three levels. And God is redeeming all aspects of who you are at this moment, if you know Christ. And he is restoring and rebuilding and growing you on every level. Yes, these bodies will die and we'll get new bodies. But we live in these bodies right now. And they are a very important and vital part of your life and your walk with God. And then there's a fifth thing that you and I need to do if we're going to master our emotions. And that's to renew your mind. Renew your mind. Twice, in verse 10 and verse 14, Elisha ends his speech saying, I alone am left. Did you catch it? He said it twice. I alone am left. And then the Lord begins speaking to him in verse 15. And when he gets to verse 18, he says, I've got 7,000 of you. <laughs> You're not the only one left. I've got 7,000 other people like you. You see, one of Elijah's problems is that he had put God into a box. He's going to overthrow Ahab and Jezebel now. I mean, he was, he was extremely optimistic and convinced that that's what God was going to do next. And when that didn't happen, he was devastated. And now he's saying, I'm the only one. He's gone from optimism to pessimism. I'm the only one that's left. 
And he's wrong about that. He says, there's no one else. And God says, you're wrong. He says, I've got Haziel. I've got Yehu. I've got 7,000 others. God never let Elisha down. It was Elisha's expectations and thoughts of God that let him down. He didn't understand what God was doing. He didn't understand who God was. And your ideas about God can do the same to you. In verse 11, it says that God sent a wind that broke the rocks. That's a pretty good wind. He sent an earthquake. He sent a fire. And, and very specifically, the Scripture says God was not in those things. And then surprise. He's in a whisper. And again, he's, he's confronting Elisha with his own expectations. God, you brought fire down on Mount Carmel. Now you're going to run over these people. And he wasn't going to do it that way at all. We all have a tendency to put God in a box. And the only way that you and I can climb out of that box is through his word. It is through his word that he reveals to you and me everything that he wants us to know about himself on this side of heaven. And I brought with me this Bible. Some of y'all have seen me bring this one before. But this is a Bible I've used for decades now. And it's where I read and I listen and I learn about who God is and what he wants me to know about him. And I have a journal. And I keep my journal electronically now, but I used to have a paper journal. But I still keep a journal. And as God speaks to me and shows me things about himself, I take a note of that. When the God of the universe speaks to you, you should jot something down about that. That's wonderful and that's marvelous and it's something he wants you to know and something he wants you to remember. Uh, God will use your Bible that way as well. What's he doing? Your moods are heavily influenced by what you're thinking about. And you may not even be fully conscious of what you're thinking about, but one thing God's Word will do is it will confront those thoughts that are not true. And it will reorder your thoughts, and it will put in your mind new thoughts. And so what you meditate on, what you think about, can control and affect your moods tremendously. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, part of the transformation process that God takes us through is when He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that renewal is linked to the Word of God. We need to recapture all of reality from His point of view. And that's what we get in the Scripture. Well, finally, if we're going to master our moods, we need to restore our direction. Restore your direction. In verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go. Now, keep in mind that this revealing of God's purpose and plan for Elijah occurs after all these other things have taken place. You see, when he was first sitting under that broom tree, God didn't go to him at that point and say, go, did he? He refreshed his body. As, as he's re, re, uh, pouring out his emotions, God refreshes his body. And he goes through this whole process of refreshing and restoration He's challenging him gently, lovingly. He's listening to him. And then God reveals to him his purpose and his plan. But he wasn't ready for it until now. You can't put me in a box, Elisha. 
God is saying. Your despondency is coming from thoughts and ideas that you have about me that are not true. And he's been very careful and slow to show us this. But when God finally starts to talk to him at the end, he says, I have a plan. I want you to go anoint Haziel, and I want you to go do this, and I want you to do this, and I want you to go involve Yehu, and there's 7,000 that you're going to be involved with, and there's this guy named Elisha I want you to meet. And what's he saying to him? I've been working all along, Elisha. I never stopped. You stopped. <laughs> but I never stopped. There's, it just wasn't your plan. But I've always had a plan. And my plan is still unfolding, and you can still be a part of my plan. And God in his grace and his mercy brings Elisha back to full prophet status. And this journey has a good ending. In Proverbs, there's a verse, and I've got it noted in your handout, but there's a verse that says, Proverbs 25, verse 28, whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now, if you've been around on Sunday nights, we've talked about Nehemiah and the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. And what we have pointed out in that study of Nehemiah is that it was never ultimately about rebuilding the walls. It was about rebuilding the people of God. And Nehemiah was used, and this project of rebuilding the walls was used to restore people who had been harassed and humiliated and who were broken and in distress and everything you read about in the first few verses of Nehemiah. And the consequence of God rebuilding the walls was to rebuild his people. Now, every Christian here, when, when you were not a Christian, there's a very real sense in which your spirit, which is the part of you that can communicate with God, was dead and cut off and in darkness spiritually. And when you were saved, the Holy Spirit of God came in and merged with your spirit, and you had a new life force inside you, the very presence of God. And beginning from the inside and working out, He is transforming you, He is changing you, conforming you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now before that happened, your life, your soul, had no walls. And your sin habits and Satan and all of the stuff in this world could influence you, could come into your life and shape you and mold you and guide you and challenge you and speak to you all day long and nothing could stop it. But when a person becomes a Christian, God begins this rebuilding process and in effect he's rebuilding the walls so that bit by bit your mind becomes more like the mind of of God, your emotions, you begin to feel and care about the things that God feels and cares about. And he goes through this, this process, and you're on a journey, and God is not finished with you. But some of us are not intentional about the journey, and you are being batted around left and right all over the place by this world, and you're a Christian. And why is that? Because he says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. 
You're not responding to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And you need to come back to him at whatever point you are emotionally this morning. You need to come back to him and say, Lord, restore me. God, rebuild the walls in my life. Help me. And cry out to him like Elisha did. As Elisha rested, he regained his desire to seek God. And as he sought God, God put him back in active duty. If you're here today and and you're not a Christian, you are very much a city without walls on the inside. And the only way for that to change is for you to get back on track with what God made you for. And he made you for himself. He made you to know him. He made you to live for him. And the way that he restores your life, the Bible explains to us, is by sending his son into the world to conquer and defeat the enemies of your soul. He lived a life that was absolutely pleasing to God. He was dependent on the Father for everything he said and did. And when he went and died on the cross, he went there as a sinless human being. And on the cross, bearing no sin of his own, the Bible says he bore our sins in his body. And God punished Jesus Christ for your sins, not for the sins of Jesus. Jesus didn't have any. He punished Jesus for your sins as if he was the guilty one. And then raised him from the dead as proof that sins could be forgiven. This morning, if you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he invites you, he calls you through his spirit, he pulls at your heart to come and surrender your life to him. That is an act of faith. That is trusting him, releasing your future your dreams, your decisions, your life into his hands. And that's why we talk so much about certain verses like John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world, that means you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, anyone here, that whosoever believes in him, not about him, not that he came, not that he was a good teacher, but putting your trust in him. That's what that word faith means. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has his Holy Spirit come inside you and redeemed your spirit and begun to change you from the inside out? Are you experiencing the life of God in your soul? This morning, we're going to have a time of response. It's part of our worship. And if you have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to invite you to come. There'll be pastors, including myself, standing here at the front. And we'll be ready to talk with you. We'll answer your questions. We'll share scripture that you can read for yourself. But we'll help simply as a guide in this process of what God is speaking to you right now about trusting him. Would you come and receive Christ today as your Lord and Savior? And then brothers and sisters, He wants to set you free. He wants to rebuild your walls. He wants to restore your soul. Would you begin that journey that Elisha took this morning? You can just bow your head there in the pew. You can come and kneel at the front.
and to say, oh God, oh God, I've been missing you. And I've been trying to do it on my own. And Lord, I feel totally defeated. My heart is broken. I have messed up. But I'm still breathing. And so I know you love me and you're calling me to yourself. And Lord, I want to begin this journey of restoration. Would you allow him to do that? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord, for your word and, and the way that you took a man who was absolutely broken and you restored him and you gave him a new life, a new direction. Lord, protect us from the ideas we have about you that are false. Deliver us from our own false expectations and set us free to a place of life a place where we can simply trust you to reveal yourself to us over the course of our lives. Father, we do pray for that person here today who needs to trust you with their, their whole life, who needs to begin the journey of salvation. We pray today, Father, that you would speak to them and draw them. Draw them. Father, as we respond to you in these moments, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us, and we ask it in Jesus' name.